to the third and last session of John Beverly's masterclass on the politics of theory. We're, according to uh, the description that we have been given, we um, finally arrived to the now in, in this account that uh, John has been giving us of the connections of theory and politics um, starting um, from uh, 50 or 60 uh, years ago. Those of you uh, who were here last week uh, know that we decided to change the starting time of this uh, session because it unfortunately coincided with an address and intervention by the ex-president of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, at another conference that started <coughs> this week, um, uh, organized by colleagues in the School of Law. Uh, we, John Beverly himself was interested in listening to her. Some of us uh, wanted to go to, but also uh, we thought that it was a good idea to to make the uh, possible that uh, people who wanted could both listen to John and, and go uh, to that talk because um, the, the preoccupations, the discussions uh, that are part of that conference are also part of what uh, John has been telling us and particularly uh, the uh, discussion of the now, the political situation now, and the connections with the academia, what to do, and so on. The, the right wing uh, shift uh, at a global level uh, through <coughs> referendums, through soft calls, and so on, including obviously the one in Brazil, had a lot to do. Uh, two things had a lot to do, so we thought it was a good idea to make those two things to, possible to happen and not clash as they did, unfortunately, because she was scheduled to talk on Friday, but then changed to Monday. The situation now is that I've been uh, told over the weekend that uh, Rousseff has cancelled completely her trip to the UK. <clears throat> so she's not going to be here, but not all hope is lost because um, precisely because of the coincidence of interests and preoccupations and also because of the stature of uh, John Beverly's um, uh, <clears throat> work um, in combination with the organizers of that other conference, and in particular Oscar um, <clears throat> Guardiola Rivera, who is also a member of, of our Center for Iberian Latin American Visual Studies, we thought that it would be a possibility to ask John to participate um, in that conference and speak to some of the issues that are certainly uh, certainly part of that conference, but also of the things that we think uh, John is interested in talking about and having a dialogue about. This is obviously very generous of John because I've told him literally 15 minutes before starting this this talk, so very grateful, and they will be very grateful for your generosity. So, those of you who can stay, please uh, do join us. Also, after this, we keep 
this uh, master class, as we said, from 11 to 1. And then from um, 2 o'clock, I think it's from 2 to 3, it might run a bit longer than that. Um, we would, those of us who want, we can go to, um, to um, it's going to take place in Mallet, B33. And that's where uh, the other uh, event will take place uh, in the context of the other conference. Okay? So without further ado, John, please uh, start when you want. Thanks, Marine Post. Uh, so, uh, Rusev's not going to be here, but I wanted to. Uh, remind everyone that uh, uh, ex existentially, so to speak, I've constructed this, these classes in relationship <coughs> to what I consider, what well, we all consider, like the downturn of the Pink Tide governments uh, in the last two or three years. Not the complete disappearance, or but certainly their fortunes are waning in some sort of way or another. And uh, since most of my work in the 90s and early 2000s was predicated both on the formation and then on the movement forward uh, of the pink tide, I kind of invested, so to speak, in the, uh, my uh, capital in the pink tide if I can use a mixed metaphor, uh, uh, I'm kind of uh, bankrupt. Uh, so uh, how, do we, how do we think from bankruptcy? Maybe that would be the question. That, uh, uh, I'm bankrupt. Other left people were more suspicious of the pink tide uh, from the beginning, and so for them the downfall of the pink tide uh, only confirms the suspicions they had initially, but that's too bad in a way, right? That uh, that they should now be in a position to celebrate the defeat of the left in some kind of way. But that's the way leftists are. They would prefer to celebrate sometimes their defeat because it proves they were right all along, than to celebrate their victory, which would prove they were they needed to reorient their thought. Uh, since we only have two hours, I thought we'd just go straight through because the break would pretty much destroy 40 minutes or so of those two hours. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll speak for about half an hour uh, and then uh, ask for questions and uh, uh, comments for about 15, 20 minutes and then speak for another half hour and then questions and comments. For 20. I think we can go a little bit after one, but I'm, we're not sure if the room is booked by another uh, uh, thing. And then those of you who can stay, as uh, Marie Pa suggested, are, are welcome to come to this uh, uh, conference uh, that's going on at the same, uh, this afternoon, uh, where I'll talk again, I guess. Uh, uh, if any of you feel you have to leave for personal or biological reasons uh, or psychic, uh, please feel free to do so. Don't, don't feel you have to stand on, on ceremony. Uh, okay, so the first two sessions concerned uh, 
very broadly speaking, what we could say, one, the, the origins of the politics of theory in, this is my hypothesis anyway, a, a, a coincidence between the force of uh, the uh, anti-colonial struggle since the Second World War and the emergence of certain new ways of thinking about the human sciences, what the French call the human sciences, uh, that at least come to cluster together in the 60s around the idea of structuralism and then post-structuralism. Just to repeat, I think, something I said in the first lecture, it, I, it is important for me to see structuralism and post-structuralism as the effects in Western, in Western centers of knowledge of uh, anti-colonial struggle. That is, without that experience of anti-colonial struggle from the Second World War onwards, really from before the Second World War, we don't have, in a sense, the, the epistemological, political, and theoretical space that then uh, structuralism moves into occupy. Existentialism and communism, the two dominant ideologies of the 50s, uh, were still, I think, marked uh, by somewhat of a remove or somewhat of an ambiguity in relationship to uh, uh, post-colonial struggle, and uh, you remember the terrible problem of the, of the French Communist Party, for example, in relationship to Algeria, where the French Communist Party could not uh, accept the, uh, Algerian independence, right? Why? Because it had a Eurocentric model of Marxist Eurocentric model of, well, socialism will solve the problem in Algeria. So first socialism, then Algeria. Existentialism similarly had, to, had struggled a lot with questions of third world. Uh, uh, all of you will remember the great novel by Camus, The Stranger, right? With, which ends with a hero, an existentialist hero, right? uh, shooting kind of arbitrarily uh, uh, an Arab man uh, on the beach. That's the act gratuit, right? Uh, so some problems here, but sixties uh, is different. Sixty social scientists begin to say. Levi Strauss says there is no difference between primitive minds and civilized minds. There's not an evolutionary, <coughs> uh, just different ways of structuring, of thinking about the world, of composing the world. Uh, but no hierarchy of difference. Uh, uh, that was an attack precisely on, on Sartre, right, and on, on uh, existentialist humanism. So that's the, the one moment, the emergence of theory and this coincidence between theory and post-colonialism, or, or anti-colonialism. Uh, the second we could call, and that was the topic uh, in one way or another of uh, the, the uh, Thursday session, the uh, what we might call the high point or the hegemony of the politics of theory in the academy, of course, uh, in the humanities and some social science sections of the academies. Uh, 
uh, which would be in the 1980s, then in passing into the into the 90s. That's a moment of the emergence of cultural studies, the emergence of subaltern studies, the emergence of post-colonial <coughs> studies, uh, queer studies, studies in general. And we are now then, and that, that would be the topic of the third lecture, way too much stuff pushed into it uh, to do real justice, but we could say we are in the moment of uh, the waning of the politics uh, of theory. And that waning is undoubtedly uh, connected to uh, the effects, the superstructural effects uh, of globalization, which have lifted up some forms of thought and pushed down uh, uh, other forms of thought. Cultural studies, for example, seems to have survived the transition uh, but in a radically uh, attenuated, uh, in many cases, a radically attenuated form. In other words, what was once a discipline that brought into uh, uh, the, the British and American Academy, and the, the Global Academy in a way, uh, uh, issues that had been generated in various forms of radical thought, and that had a distinctly <coughs> Uh, red uh, or new left uh, character to it. Uh, one mentioned simply in this respect the dominant uh, figure of Stuart Hall uh, uh, now seems to be part of the academic superstructure of uh, 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 global universities. Global universities will have schools of cultural study and as I mentioned uh, uh, in the last lecture, a, a kind of sign of this integration, I'll pass this around because I found it, I, I didn't have it last week. Uh, I've been invited, uh, I'm not going to this obviously, but uh, to something called the Fifth Contemporary Cultural Studies Conference. Fifth Contemporary Cultural Studies Conference, uh, which will be happening in Singapore. If, if anybody <coughs> wants to go, here's the invitation. Uh, I'll pass it around. Uh, and uh, one of the three keynote speakers uh, uh, will be by Associate Professor Margaret Chan of the School of Social Sciences, Singapore Management University. That in itself is an odd concept. But, uh, and the title of her talk will be Strategic Cultural Heritage, Discovering the Cultural DNA of Success. I don't doubt that that's a topic that could have some interesting uh, components in it, but it's not quite what we had in mind when we generated the <coughs> of cultural studies, which was to try to bring precisely uh, the voice and the experience of working class and popular and indigenous and subaltern sectors of society into the framework uh, of academy. We weren't necessarily talking about how to create new executives. Do you mind passing it around, Mary? Thanks. Post-colonialism, we're all post-colonialists now, right? Everybody's post-colonial. So post-post-colonialism, which is our, the situation we're entering now, 
is sort of like what used to be talked about maybe 10 years ago as post-feminism, right? Feminism has become generalized, mainstreamed was the word uh, some feminist theoreticians used. Uh, uh, all businesses, all the Euro European economic community, uh, International Monetary Fund have femin feminists or women's uh, uh, branches that make sure that women's rights are being implemented and women are being promoted and so forth and so on. So feminism has been mainstream. Uh, that's, that's the main idea of post-feminism. Uh, everybody's a feminist, uh, or everybody accepts at least in principle feminism. Even the new right accepts feminism. I was reading the famous uh, French new right theoretician Alain Benoit, who's kind of a the main theorist of the uh, Marie Le Pen forces, right? And he has a chapter on feminism. Of course, he has a kind of weird take on feminism. <coughs> but he uses the word feminism uh, and the right to abortion and to the right to difference. Right? Okay. Uh, but as many uh, uh, feminist uh, thinkers have pointed out in relationship to post-feminism, while post-feminism can be seen positively as a generalization of the problematic of feminism into society as a whole, so that feminism no longer stands as a protest movement at the edge of society, kind of pushing in, uh, it's at the expense, too, of losing whatever radical force feminism possessed in the in its emergence in the 70s, 80s, uh, and not, feminism is no longer, if it exists at all, and it probably exists mainly in the academy, uh, it's, um, it's lost its radical uh, edge. Finally, uh, we could say there is, a, in relationship to the, what I'm calling the waning of the politics of theory, uh, uh, I, I can repeat what I said at the beginning, which is that uh, my own intervention here is <coughs> deter determined, uh, conditioned by the downturn in the fortunes in Latin America of the pink tide governments to the extent especially to the extent I imagine the pink tide governments to be to some extent, to the very minor extent in which what we do in the academy impacts <coughs> on what happens in political theory and political practice uh, uh, by the politics of theory. In other words, I imagine new forms of left-wing organization coming not only out of new social movements, but also out of the way in which new forms of theory, the forms of theory we've been talking about, post-colonial, subaltern, uh, created new parameters for uh, political thinking uh, and allowed the emergence of, a, of new forms of, of left of, uh, activism in government. So that the politics of theory, which begins very definitely outside the state, could be said by, say, 2010, to be inside <coughs> American states. Literally inside. You had states, people who uh, 
had in their libraries, you know, Levi Strauss, Hart and Angry, Beverly, uh, Subaltered Studies, uh, uh, and had read the, well, maybe not Beverly so much, but certainly Subaltered Studies, Post-Colonial Studies, Mignolo. Uh, probably the, the the epitome of this uh, uh, entry of Walter of uh, uh, paradoxical entry of theory, right? Which is was because theory was mainly a critique of the state, uh, uh, especially subaltern studies. Right? Uh, yeah, it is the uh, uh, the Brazilian vice president Garcia Lineda. Right, whose own essay that I mentioned in the readings for this session, uh, state power and hegemony, or something, something like that, for state crisis and and uh, popular hegemony, uh, which appeared in the New Left Review maybe ten, ten years ago, seven years ago. Uh, I think is a very dynamic and. <coughs> eye-opening uh, expression of the possibility of constructing a new type of left-wing politics, hegemonic left-wing politics, Gramscian kind of model, uh, out of elements that very clearly are linked to uh, elements of post-colonial uh, uh, theory, especially by placing the, the idea of that the indigenous population of uh, Bolivia would be the key sector in the construction of a new mo movement for hegemony of the left uh, in uh, in Bolivia, as opposed to the traditional uh, Bolivian Marxist view shared by both Trotskyist and Stalinist that the working class was the key sector, the, mine, the mining working class uh, was the key sector. <coughs> So my feeling uh, about the politics of theory then is uh, uh, today decidedly melancholic uh, in the terms of Freud's famous distinction between uh, mourning and melancholy. Right? Uh, you're all from. You're supposed to pass from melancholy where you're still bound in some sense or another to the dead object. Uh, or the object you've lost uh, to mourning, and mourning then will allow you to. So I'm, I'm melancholic, not more, I haven't born. Uh, and the American cultural theorist uh, Wendy Brown, uh, uh, in a book called States of, In States of Injury, some of you may know, uh, Wendy Brown is, uh, or was, I'm not sure what the situation is, <coughs> Judith Butler's significant other, uh, uh, speaks, I think, usefully, although I, I, I don't like her argument in some way, uh, of left melancholia, right? The melancholia of a generation that thought it was going to change the world and is now kind of stranded. Uh, left melancholy, an, a Nietzschean a concept. Uh, the uh, greatest expression, I think, of left melancholia in 
contemporary Latin American culture, maybe in contemporary culture generally, is the uh, 2004 novel, 1,000-page long novel. John Kronianskis has written about it. I just finished the whole seminar, semester-long seminar in, in Pittsburgh, uh, 2,666 by the Chilean novelist uh, Roberto Molano. If you want to get an idea of what left melancholia is, uh, read that novel or read as much of it as you can. Uh, at the same time, we have this kind of um, what I call the waning of the politics of theory. Uh, uh, and a definite shift <coughs> to the right in Latin America and, of course, in the United States also. Uh, perhaps for related reasons. Perhaps Dilma's mistake was not unlike the mistake uh, of Obama and Hillary. We could talk more about that uh, uh, this afternoon. Uh, uh, there is a current uh, that comes out of the politics of theory, uh, uh, which has prospered uh, preci precisely out of what we might call the foreclosure of the politics of theory. It, in, it has generated a kind of, what I consider uh, stock market people talk about <coughs> irrational enthusiasm. And so what I'll call a, in a left-wing way, uh, an irrational enthusiasm uh, about the radical or revolutionary possibilities uh, uh, opened up by globalization. So that's the second moment of my remarks today. The first moment is <coughs> left melancholy. The second moment is uh, what I'll call the Deleuzean term, referring to the French philosopher Deleuze and his general, uh, generalized influence of Deleuze and post-Deleuzean thinking uh, on um, left-wing thought uh, and activism uh, uh, in the present, in the last 10 years. Some people like to call this the affective turn in, uh, in humanities, right? Uh, because of the importance of the concept of affect, uh, which Deleuze gets from Spinoza, right? states of being, sort of, as opposed to emotions. Anger is an emotion. Resentment is a state of being, right? A constant state of being. Anyway, I'm not going to get into a discussion of that. I'm not prepared. It's beyond my pay grade. And, uh, but certainly, as you all know, and maybe many of you are participating in, right, this affect turn and this idea of a kind of new Deleuzean, Spinozian, Nietzschean uh, articulation of, uh, of leftism uh, uh, seems to be uh, strong these days. Seems to be the kind of uh, force uh, that animates something like uh, 
the anti-Wall Street demonstrations, uh, Occupy Wall Street in the United States uh, a couple of years ago. Demonstrations that were powerful and widespread, and but that did not lead to have any political consequences or any apparent political consequences. And that in the case of similar demonstrations in Latin America, might have had political consequences, but perhaps negative ones for the governments of the new left in the sense that they acted in some kinds of ways to delegitimize or deauthorize uh, governments that were already in trouble because of economic and, uh, reasons like uh, the Dilma Rousseff and the PT government in Brazil. So I consider this, uh, argumentatively, we can productively maybe debate that, uh, uh, a, a form of ultra-left, what Lenin used to call, or called famously in 1920, ultra-leftism. Just to recall that concept briefly, after the Russian Revolution there were a bunch of uh, parties that emerged <coughs> to the left wing of the Social Democratic and Labour parties of the day in England, Holland, Belgium, weird places. <coughs> Uh, and uh, uh, arguing that Lenin, by breaking with the Mensheviks, had been able to create a revolution uh, in Russia, they said, well, we have to follow that model in our own countries. And as a result, the British, uh, the new British Communist Party decided to break away from labor and attack labor. and create separate unions from the unions, try to create separate unions from the unions. And uh, with the idea that by doing this they would uh, create a state of uh, energy and, and dynamism that would very quickly uh, lead their countries to uh, uh, become revolutionary in the same kind of way um, uh, Russia had become. Uh, and Lenin, surprisingly, because they're all trying to be Leninist, all these... Uh, Lukacs, the famous cultural theorist, was an ultra-leftist, uh, sort of shifted from Kantianism to uh, ultra-left uh, communism. Uh, and his very famous and very worth rereading book, or reading for the first time, History and Class Consciousness, is a from the 1920s, essays from the 1920s, is a kind of <coughs> expression of ultra-leftism. So, uh, philosophical expression of ultra-leftism. So, Lenin criticizes these movements uh, on the grounds that in the name of uh, 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 communism and breaking with the reformist uh, tradition of uh, the Social Democrat Labor parties, uh, they imperil the actual movement forward of communist and socialist ideas in European society. They, dis they disauthorize trade unions, they disauthorize uh, parties that may have some parliamentary presence for socialism or communism, uh, and so Lenin calls them ultra ultra-leftism, and he adds ultra-leftism, an, an infantile disorder. It's an infantile disorder because it's characterized, so Lenin claimed, by the kind of uh, impatience and enthusiasm uh, 
young people and adolescent people have. We're impatient to get to the revolution. We want it, we want it now. We don't want to have to go through all the intermediate uh, processes. So I see the Deleuzean turn essentially as a kind of form of <coughs> mainly middle class in character, right? The people who are impatient about revolution are not, in Latin America, are not necessarily indigenous people or working class people or black people who have long endured centuries conditions of oppression, but as in the 60s, people like myself, middle class people, who have absorbed some elements of radical uh, thought and theory and want to see things change, for have that kind of uh, uh, impatience, but also a kind of petty bourgeois instability, which allows them to shift very easily between uh, ultra-leftism and, and um, uh, rightism or integration into uh, just into global global liberalism. So I take the key statement of, uh, and I'll do this quickly, uh, of uh, uh, this new Deleuzean or affect uh, 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 leftism, which comes out of the politics of theory, is a respectable outcome of the politics of theory. Uh, to be Michael Hart and Antonio Negri's famous 2000 manifesto, Empire, and its two subsequent uh, 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 volumes, uh, Commonwealth and Multitude. Uh, there is a Latin Americanist connection here because uh, not so much Negri, but although Negri has a strong, had a strong following in Latin America in the 90s. Uh, Garcia Linera, the Bolivian vice president I mentioned before, was a kind of a Garcia, uh, a Negri uh, in, the, in the 90s, not anymore, but uh, uh, but Hart, Michael Hart, an American uh, guy uh, who teaches at Duke, uh, uh, was a Latin Americanist who spent a lot of time, as I did too, in Nicaragua uh, in the 1980s during the Sandinista Revolution, and, and, and therefore whose vision of revolutionary possibility had a, a Latin American component. At, at the time they wrote their book, and, and the book started to circulate, and uh, they began to develop the continuation to the book. There was a lot of there were a lot of very powerful indigenous social movements. For, in, for example, in Bolivia, uh, some of you who are Latin Americanists know uh, there was a, a very powerful movement in the big city of Cochabamba to against the privatization of the the water system, and that. Movement against <coughs> privatization, which Hart and Negri see as an example of a new kind of radical subject uh, uh, and politics, uh, led to more or less directly the formation of the Bolivian party that's called the movement towards socialism, the, the MAS.
Finally, and this is the third uh, uh, thing, and, and that's my frame for today. Uh, I'll say I have more to say about Hurt and Angry uh, at the beginning of the, the second round, but uh, there's the rise. Marie Boss alluded to it, but I think it's the dominant um, question now. Uh, of uh, right-wing populism. Right-wing populism that has a slightly Nazi or fascist character to it, kind of light, L we have that word in the United States, light, L-I-T-E, right, like light cheese. Uh, the, the hard calories have been taken out of it. So, uh, this is light fascism, right? National Front, Hungary, Poland, Poland, Poland looks like it's getting a little heavier, but uh, Putin, uh, the guy in the Philippines, Duterte, who's killing all the drug dealers, uh, uh, kind of authoritarian, Trump, uh, certainly Trump. Very easy to imagine how Trump could become uh, a dictator, uh, not hard at all. Uh, American system is strong, but it also has some some weaknesses. Uh, uh, the shift to the right in Latin America. The shift to the right in Latin America hasn't been so far predominantly uh, national populist. It's been more let's get on the global bandwagon, right? Uh, uh, but there are elements in Latin American thought that one could see coming out, and especially in Colombia, I think the, the, the right wing of the right wing in, in Colombia has <coughs> like, uh, or is developing something like a, a national uh, populist program. The person I want to talk about in that respect, uh, a, a very interesting figure, uh, is Alexander Dugan, D-U-G-I-N. Uh, a uh, political philosopher in uh, Russia, in Moscow, uh, academic, uh, who is said to be the uh, assessor, the counselor, the ideological counselor, Machiavelli, maybe, of Putin. Uh, Dugan specializes in generating uh, 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 new forms of political analysis and theory, kind of pan-Slavic, if you remember the famous debate between the pan-Slavic people and the liberals. Dostoevsky was a liberal, but then he converted to pan-Slavism at the end of his life as a core debate in Russian 19th century culture. Well, it's sort of, Dugan has sort of revived it, but in a specifically, he uses the word, post-colonial form. Right? Pan-Slavism is the and the, the reconstruction of the Russian Empire and the reconstruction of traditional Russian religious and family values. I don't know if you noticed a couple of weeks ago that the Russian parliament decided to decriminalize uh, abuse against women. Right? I didn't know that they had strong laws against beating up women, right? especially your wife. But now they've taken those laws away. Why? Because that, those laws were liberal and westernizing, and Russia had a different way of 
handling these things and the church didn't like it and so forth and so on, right? So that's kind of pan-Slavic, but it's post-colonial because it's fighting against uh, uh, what Dugan says is you know, the colonial, the colonizing force of uh, neoliberal hegemony. Just one more word on that and then I'll break. Uh, Dugan calls his doctrine the fourth politics. That's and that's if you're looking to get a quick uh, hit of Dugan, uh, that's where you want to go. Uh, uh, the fourth politics translated. Uh, <coughs> and it's the fourth in this sense. There was uh, communism. There was fascism. Now there's liberalism. Liberalism is the dominant. Uh, and liberalism goes with globalization. Uh, liberalism won. Uh, but now a new politics is emerging. Uh, the fourth politics, uh, uh, which sees as its main uh, antagonist uh, liberalism. Okay, let me stop there, and uh, I don't know if there are some initial questions, but there's some space here for questions, and then we can go back into it. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. That was that was very interesting and thought-provoking. Um, I wanted to question two things that you've said. Um, one is the question of um, uh, leftism, ultra-leftism, you called it. Um, and I wonder to what extent uh, that um, label is fair, sort of as a statement to put globally um, in relation to social democracy, because it seems to me that it's not the same attacking social democracy at the moment in history when it hasn't been in power, uh, as opposed to the ways in which social democracy and sort of party politics is being criticized today when in Europe at least we know that social democracy third way uh, um, social democracy and all that kind of stuff has ended up being uh, neoliberalism by other terms. Right. So the reaction against that I think is justified. And needed. I mean, in, in a way, to go back to social democracy, right. <laughs> to the to the extent that we know that <coughs> what uh, what are called by mainstream media radical um, leftists in this country or in Spain or in Portugal and other places are nothing more than social democratic policies that are now seen by some as radical. <coughs> That that was one comment. The other comment is about. You mean like you, Podemos, or? Yes. You consider Podemos social democrat. Many of the policies, or Corbyn's policies today, in, in the manifesto. Yeah. Th but better than Pessoa. Well, well, because Pessoa is precisely that what I was saying. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it became indistinguishable, particularly in social and economic yeah, yeah. terms. From or, or, or Blair here yeah. and, and so on. So the, the social democracy has had a fair share of being in power and has demonstrated what it can do 
one cannot do. The, the other thing is connected to that is the way how you talked about the Occupy movement as something that, that ended up in nothing, which is not the case everywhere at all. Not in Portugal, not in Spain, not in Greece, certainly even though that ended up in tragedy. Now with the rise of Melenchon, for example, in France. And Podemos is a good example of, of a movement that didn't want to end up in nothing and, and turn to party <coughs> politics precisely as a way to access power through the channels that already exist. Correct. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's a little unfair because it's very difficult at any given moment to distinguish ultra-leftism from leftism. Right? I mean, the people that Lenin was politicizing with were his, precisely his disciples who said, ah, we have a new model of revolutionary agency and possibility in Europe. And let's go for that. Let's go away from these crummy social, social democratic parties who, worse than the ones today, had just put Europe through, in general, right, uh, uh, the worst war in human history, right, with socialist support. You know, English social democracy is better than German social democracy. Right? I remember seeing a debate, uh, in I guess in the early. 2000s, uh, it was a, a feed, a live feed of the Labor Party conference in one of these beach towns, right here. Right. Uh, and they were debating whether the Labor Party should support the Iraq war. And speaker after speaker got up. And, uh, most of them said they should support the Iraq war. And they gave a socialist argument for supporting the Iraq war. Well, you know, we represent women's rights and labor rights and so forth and so on. And, and those Iraqis, they're pretty bad, you know, and uh, you know, the war will... And the Labor Party did support the war, right? Uh, much to its cost and discredit. So if you're saying, okay, you are, you're going to be against that, of course you're going to be against that. You know, that that's almost classically what Lenin meant by, by imperialism, right? And the way in which socialism can be sort of co-opted. Uh, I think the problem. Uh, so Hart and Angry's idea is that a new revolutionary subject is emerging, uh, which they call the multitude. Right, another concept that goes back to Spinoza. And gets reprocessed through Italian uh, weak thought uh, uh, and Negri in the 1960s and 70s. The multitude is not exactly the working class or the working classes, but a kind of heterogeneous, uh, uh, hydra-headed, uh, rhizomatic subject, right? Because the multitude may float between countries. It's not no longer defined by the territoriality of the nation state, right? The multitude is more like and depends on uh, uh, cybernetic networks, right? And out of that uh, cybernization of politics, so to speak, uh, you have phenomena like the uh, the use of. Uh, 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 Facebook and stuff like that D during, say, the the uh, the Arab Spring, 
right? The Arab Spring would be the political expression of one possible political expression of the kind of politics that uh, uh, Hart and Negri uh, are, and others of the same sort, including many uh, uh, thinker, Middle Eastern thinkers, right, who sort of jumped on that bandwagon. Guy uh, called Hamid Dabashi in, at, uh, in New York, at Columbia. Uh, John and I know him. Uh, but the Arab Spring was a disaster. Right? I mean, I don't think there's any other way of putting it. And it was a disaster. Why? It was a disaster. And uh, not Wall Street wasn't a disaster in the sense we didn't. We don't, have a, we don't yet have a dictatorship, but but it it led to we have ambiguous consequences. <laughs> Neither the Arab Spring, nor uh, uh, Wall Street, nor the Zapatistas uh, posed the question of the state. They, their idea was, in this sense, very much uh, uh, in tune with the Deleuzea, there's a strong anarchist streak. Uh, <coughs> kind of anarchist streak in Deleuzean thought, right? Uh, these movements would appear necessarily outside the state because the state was corrupt and tied in with capitalism. <coughs> uh, and uh, kind of overwhelmed the state at some point or another, but but or already be beyond the state in some sense or another. Uh, that was the so they don't they didn't take up the question of hegemony. Hegemony would be in Gramsci's famous definition of hegemony, uh, moral and intellectual leadership of the nation, moral and intellectual leadership of the nation. Right? Uh, in other words, you had to have you have to put forward a program that significant sectors. Uh, of the society, <coughs> not just yourselves, uh, agree is the vision uh, that they're willing to group together uh, to push the society forward. And that, in some sense or another, that vision, which is what Gramsci means by hegemony, and cons consensus rather than domination, right, has to be political and cultural values. <clears throat> and government, because leadership is exercised through government. Whereas Podemos, since we were talking about Podemos, or Syriza, uh, or the Latin American uh, pink tie groups, which felt a great kinship uh, with uh, Syriza and Podemos. Uh, I had a very good friend, a philosopher at Pip, who was Greek, who went back to Greece and became Minister of Culture for the Syriza government. And uh, when I saw him a couple of years ago, he said, uh, you know, we, they invited us to Latin America, and uh, the, the, the main impression we had being in Latin America is we are not alone. In other words, there are lots of other people in the world who are trying to do the same kind of thing we're trying to do with Syriza, uh, which is to sort of marry this ultra-radicalism that comes out of the politics of theory to actually taking over, or <clears throat> not taking, you don't take over the state, the state's obviously a complex and 
contradictory and multifaceted, but you're in it. You're operating in it. You're trying to do something inside the state instead of just out from outside uh, 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 the state. So that that's where I would see the key distinction. So to the extent that ultra-leftism, as in the Zapatista case, uh, is dedicated above all to the notion that the state is a space, um, I clearly exaggerating here, but you remember those medieval paintings where there's hell, like Broyker or something, and fires and stuff like that, and, and then heaven on the other side, gardens. And, well, I think there's a Manichaean tendency in, in uh, ultra-leftist politics to see the state as hell and or, or unredeemed, an unredeemable space, right? Uh, and uh, the social movements, on the other hand, uh, Facebook kind of things, as heaven. As if somehow or another the kinds of interconnections and virtual communities created via Facebook or, v or created via street demonstrations, where all of a sudden you're in the middle of a, thousands of people around you, you're in Cairo, you know, after a generation of oppression and all these different people, workers, students, and women, men, young people, old people, uh, you're all together. <coughs> And that's uh, a moment of tremendous power and enthusiasm. But it's not a moment of hegemonic politics, right? You have to sort of find a way to get from the enthusiasm of the demonstration. And, and they never did. They never did because they didn't pose that as a problem, right? <clears throat> the, the Arab Spring. The Zapatistas refused to participate in the elections of 2005 in Mexico, where if they had participated, they might have tipped the scales a little bit in favor of the uh, left-wing, the social democratic left-wing uh, center-left party, the PRD, which <coughs> lost only by a few, less than one, maybe a, one percentage point, very narrow. Like Zapatistas refused to endorse the party of the left. Why? Well, they're in the state. Our, project is other. So that that's the problem uh, as I see it. Uh, that's why I call it, I'm, I'm willing to take on the very uh, controversial uh, uh, label of ultra-leftism. Because ultra-leftism always support, like, like Stalinists used to talk about Trotskyist as political wreckers, right? You remember, those of you who are old, <coughs> Uh, Ultra-leftism, it seems to me, can have, uh, at times, a wrecking effect on politics. At the same time that it's mobilizing new energies, new technologies, the web, media, uh, young people. It, it, maybe we could take one other and then, then I'll pop into the second. Yeah. yeah. I think that um, your definition in this country, at least, the the, the left Trotskyist. Could you speak up a little bit because my hearing is. The left Trotskyist groups are the ultra left ultimately, and I think a good example of that is the for the referendum. They actually advised to vote Brexit. 
because there was a sense ah, that you're you could actually the left confront, or, yeah. you know, the, you could confront yeah, the, really um, the sort of European right. state. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised. I, I mean, I think everybody knows that Corbyn was deeply ambivalent, right? I mean, he did campaign to remain, but probably his own instincts uh, were at Brexity. That's something a little different, and I think we need to maybe, because that has something to do with why very large sections of the traditional white working class in countries like Britain or the United States or the older working class in uh, Poland or all the, who, what happened to all those people in, who were in solidarity in the 80s, the great working class movement against Stalinist. Uh, they're probably all in the right wing government now, or a lot of them, right? Uh, functioning, you know, Congress people. And, and it's a pretty right wing government, right? It's pretty, it's anti-Semitic to begin with, you know, and then and goes on from there. So something shifted. Uh, and it has something to do with deindustrialization and globalization. And I'm not sure that kind of heart negri ultra-leftism would be the best way to get hold of that. <clears throat> because in a way, they're more, the Deleuzians are more champions of uh, the big changes that have happened in modern capitalism. Uh, and they would say, uh, uh, my friend Bruno Bastilles, who's a... <coughs> kind of a, a <coughs> disciple says, against Hart and Negri, their idea is that the more capitalism there is, the more chance we have of communism. Well, <coughs> well in a strange way, of course, that's straight out of Marx and Engels, yes. uh, that kind of position. It is. In a way. Uh, but for me, the key thing is, uh, you know, in these debates here about ultra-leftism, uh, the infantile disorder, Lenin, and so forth. All of that, really, and even in Hart and Negri debates today, are, are centered around parties. In other words, the idea of the party and the left-wing party. And, uh, of course, conceiving parties as proto-state organizations. So th that seems to be a lot of the debate, anyway, that I've heard, you know, Hart and Negri stuff, whatever. And of course, you know, if you think about uh, Lukács, Lukács's shift from a, basically a Rosa Luxemburgian position to a Leninist position uh, was uh, centered around turning against Rosa Luxemburg and, of course, their whole conception and critique of, let's say, the Bolshevik party. And so a lot of that was, a lot of this or that and then now today is about the role of party structures. Absolutely. And then, of course, within that conceptually, the role of, let's say, counter-hegemony and hegemony uh, within that. As far as I understand it, in Podemos there's lots of discussions about hegemony uh, uh, and Laclau and, 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 and all of this kind oh, of yeah, stuff. Oh yeah, don't get me wrong, Joe. <coughs> no, no, but wait a minute. Podemos is exactly no, but, the and 
antidote to yeah. ultra leftism. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, is that uh, you know, let's say for Deleuze and Guattari and uh, Negri and whatever, one can make, I think, uh, uh, a distinction between, if you like, the analytics of their work. You know, so you take Deleuze and Guattari and you take Hart and Negri and their analysis of the world as it is today. Uh, on the one hand, without necessarily, <laughs> if you see what I mean, uh, seeing this as a political, uh, uh, necessarily <laughs> taking up the political offering that they seem to be offering as well. If you, do you see what I mean? In other words, I, I think Negri and Hart and Deleuze and Guattari provide really excellent analysis of capitalism today. But their politics... <laughs> is a, you know, how to struggle against that, perhaps, is completely another thing. And if you read things like A Thousand Plateaus, they despair as they go along as well. Otherwise, they keep on saying, what do we, you know, what, what's the politics of this? We don't know. <laughs> uh, how do you deal with this, etc., etc.? Whereas a lot of their <coughs> disciples, let's put it that way, don't really seem to have those, let's say, ambiguities or hesitations in the, in the way they pick these writers up politically, if you see what I mean. <clears throat> Let me use that to jump into. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think the question of politics <coughs> is fundamental, and one of the reasons why uh, I was so heavily invested in the pink tide governments in Latin America is that I thought they did come out of the kind of, or they had elements of the kind of theoretical work we had been involved in in the academy. And sometimes they were <coughs> direct points of contact, as in the case of the Bolivians and Garcia Linera. It's often said that the Brazilian PT has an enormous concentration of uh, psychoanalysts, right? Lacanian psychoanalysis. You know, that's one of the big components of the, uh, besides auto workers and landless peasants and psychoanalysts. Uh, and so that notion itself, the notion of a kind of new possibility of alliance between a radicalized intelligentsia and uh, the masses, the, the people, was uh, exciting. Uh, and and it, it needed to take, yeah, the, the question was how could it take a political form? So there was a debate within subaltern studies itself, as I explained in, in my last class, subaltern studies was, John was involved too, a, a, a process, uh, always open-ended, always opening and closing, kind of like a clamshell or something like that. Uh, and, uh, but probably uh, we came to a, a, a parting of the ways uh, because of a contradiction internal to the group which resembles uh, uh, this uh, issue we've been talking about, which is that on the one hand uh, there were those uh, who took subaltern studies uh, to be precisely a critique of the state form as such, the state form as such as a product of colonialism uh, in the third world. Uh, and therefore always the, the subaltern in a sense could be defined in the, in the most simple terms as not the state, right? 
uh, uh, high culture uh, uh, it could be as not subaltern, right? Literature. Um, uh, we could call that the deconstructive model of subalternism and identify it pretty much with uh, Gayatri Spivak, right? And the Spivak's uh, famous essay, uh, which if there's some time I'll mention, uh, can, can the subaltern speak? Uh, so that was one side. Uh, and that's the side of subaltern studies that saw in something like Zapatismo in the 1990s. I remember we published in one of our early publications the Zapatista Manifesto from the jungle. Because uh, we saw Zapatismo in some sense of <coughs> incarnation of the uh, theoretical position we were trying to. And uh, as some of you may know, the uh, Indian, the South Asian uh, subalternist who we blatantly imitated. Uh, uh, so much so that people like to call us the subaltern subaltern studies group. <laughs> the Latin American group was the subaltern. Uh, we're, we're connected in one way or another to uh, uh, whatever the complex splits were in the Indian communist movement, but certainly the one that produced the Naxalite peasant rebellions of more or less Maoist inspiration in Bengal, right? Against a, a social democratic communist, but social democratic government in Bengal. Bengal is, a, by the way, a country larger than England, so this is a fairly significant uh, political, oh, totally unregistered, obviously, too much, too far away from England. Uh, so uh, the other side, though, was more the side I was on. I had been involved in uh, uh, the efforts to create American socialist uh, movement. I talked a little bit about those party movement, small party uh, in the in the 70s. Uh, and so we were looking for the way in which, in what we thought was a more Gramscian kind of way, as opposed to the that might be the about deconstruction and the way Gramscian. And the other, in which uh, the forms of uh, negation uh, and therefore energy uh, implicit in uh, subaltern positions, uh, which were not only those of class, but certainly cross-class, but also had to do with race, gender, so could be channeled and uh, produce a new pulse, uh, which uh, in the words of uh, the founding member of the uh, subaltern studies group, Anashik Kuha, who was slightly tinged by Maoism, uh, he called the poli a politics of the people, where the there is a kind of uh, blurring between the notion of the people, uh, which in in contemporary Marxist theory comes dominantly from the popular the theory the theory created around the Popular Front in the 1930s, uh, 
uh, and the notion of the subaltern. Subaltern and people. <coughs> Uh, so that subalternism should produce a new form of politics, a new, and a new form of politics that would act uh, hegemonically within, not only, but certainly predominantly, within the space of the nation <coughs> And therefore would have its aim to take the, the entering into uh, the state uh, uh, to use the state as a, as a space to uh, begin the process, uh, not complete, but begin the process of transforming uh, social institutions, but from a subalternist uh, perspective, bringing into That was a split within the subaltern studies group, and probably within individuals ourselves within the group, between this more deconstructive notion of subaltern. The subalternism is always that, which is below <coughs> the level of formal politics, hegemony, the state, uh, organizations. The subaltern cannot speak. And the whole apparatus of political parties, unions, so forth and so on, is an apparatus in India or in Latin America, totally still bound up with uh, colonial or coloniality of power in, in, in some kind of way or another. So the state became the issue, and the the line I followed uh, and. I was in a minority position. I was the Menshevik in this debate. Uh, uh, remember that Menshevik means minority and Bolshevik means majority in the old debate in the Russian. So I was the Menshevik. I and a couple of others, and everybody else sort of remained true to the, uh, the dominant position, which was uh, not to get involved. All my buddies thought it was a great idea that the Zapatistas didn't support the PRD, the Partido Revolucionario Democrático in, 19, in 2005, because they were corrupt and opportunistic, and, which they were, but nevertheless not supportive. Uh, and things went on from there. The, the famous argument of Spivak, which is, by the way, interestingly enough, even though I would put both of them in a kind of ultra-left uh, position, is, was an argument against Derrida. I'm sorry, for Derrida and against Deleuze in Can the Subaltern Speak? I don't know if any of you, have any of you read that article? Is that article still read? Mm -hmm. Not too many. Okay. That was the big article post-colonial studies in the 90s, I guess. Everybody had to work through that extremely difficult article which was about representation and started as an attack on a project that Foucault and Deleuze had cooked <coughs> up to get the testimonies from prisoners in French prison systems and to publish them directly and in that kind of way without the mediation of intellectual commentary or social sciences or so forth and so on. The prisoners would, so to speak, speak for themselves. right? instead of being spoken for by ethnographers or sociologists who were studying conditions in prisons or novelists or direct. So Spivak, and that's 
that was Deleuzian, right? That was direct, you don't know. The kanatus of the prisoners, the, the, what was inside them would, uh, would express itself. And Spivak said, after a long and very complicated argument about representation, which I don't remember all that, but hinges on distinction between German words, one for, that represents portrait and the other that represents what the English word proxy suggests, that speaking about, speaking for, uh, uh, leads to this story. There's a little short story at the end. Maybe there's, yeah, there's enough time to tell the story. The, the good short story. There is a, Spivak is talking about a woman who, several generations back, she's distantly related to. Uh, uh, I'm going to pronounce this, probably mispronounce this, but Buba Deswari, Buba Deswari, <clears throat> Baduri, B-H-A-D-U-R-I. This uh, was at, 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 in the 20s, uh, uh, in Spivak's family, a young woman who uh, had become involved in the nationalist movement and uh, unlike the Gandhians in a, uh, a, a wing of the nationalist movement, uh, uh, that uh, kind of like the IRA, uh, believed in terrorism as a effective means to uh, fight against uh, uh, British colonial rule. And as a uh, member of the organization, the young woman was given the task of uh, assassinating somebody, uh, some British colonial official or Indian uh, 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 accomplice of colonialism. And she struggled with the task. She accepted the task. She was a loyal member of the party and a loyal nationalist and, and understood the reasons for terrorism. She, it wasn't like she was opposed in principle to the idea. But she felt that in all good conscience she couldn't carry out the task. It just didn't sit well with her. Uh, and so uh, uh, she elected to uh, commit suicide instead of uh, being obligated to take the task or of abandoning the terrorist movement, which she continued to uh, believe in denouncing it or something like that. So, uh, but uh, she's aware uh, that uh, in India at that time, uh, or in Bengal at that time, uh, the uh, if a young woman like her commits suicide, it's, it's the automatic reading is that she's doing it because uh, she has an unwanted pregnancy, and the guy involved is disappeared, right? And not going to marry her, uh, which it, it, in Indian culture, especially in traditional Indian culture, creates a lot of. Problems. Usually, one of the solutions is the woman is put into a kind of state of seclusion for the rest of her life, right, with other in very bad condition. This was a middle class woman, right, not a working class woman. So that's 
So uh, she decides to wait until she's uh, menstruating uh, to commit suicide. Right? Then when she's menstruating, she hangs herself. Uh, and the body is discovered and uh, the subaltern speaks, right? I mean, in other words, she makes through the uh, choice of uh, killing herself uh, while she's menstruating. Uh, the clear instruction to, that this needs to be interpreted as a tragic suicide, right? Uh, uh, to no avail. Spivak says. Spivak talks to the relatives today and they uh, all say, oh, uh, Maduri uh, killed herself for sentimental reasons. She was probably pregnant and some guy jilted her and uh, that's it. So the whole business of waiting until she was menstruating is wiped out. Uh, uh, and what should have been a tragedy, right, uh, in, the, in the sense of like Antigone is a tragedy, a tragedy of two aughts, right? There's a struggle between the duty of revolutionary militancy and, and con personal conscience uh, is completely effaced and we're left with something like a, 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 tele, a, a sad ending of a telenovela, right? Uh, So, the subaltern cannot speak. As a young woman in a colonial society, the powers of organization, of culture, common sense, uh, how you read events completely uh, prevail and don't allow the, the counter-narrative of the young woman to appear. So this business of Deleuze and Foucault that the prisoners can speak directly and, uh, you know, without the mediation of ethnographers or intellectuals is bullshit. And uh, the, in order to speak, the subaltern requires some kind of form of solidarity or uh, fraternity on the, on the part of a critical intellectual like Spivak herself who can recover the history and reconstruct it. And, Just a quick word about affect, uh, since this, this involves affect in some sense or another. Uh, I, I'm not. Emily's probably better at affect, I suspect, but at least she's of the generation that had to take seriously the question of affect and. Uh, and wrote and writes books like the affect in contemporary Latin American film or something like that. Which I would write a book that's ideology in contemporary Latin American film, right? It's ideology and affect because uh, I'm an idea person, and for me, a hegemonic articulation is an articulation of ideas. You know, the American spirit, and as represented by the multicultural always already multicultural character of American society. There have been Latin, Spanish-speaking people in America from even before it became a nation. A right? large section of the United States was uh, Spanish-speaking. So you can't just talk about 
planet sweetens the immigrants, they're part of it, etc. But affect seems to displace ideology in some sense, uh, and hegemonic articulation is as ideological articulation. Uh, ideological articulation fits with the model of uh, uh, the politics of theory that's founded out of structuralism, right? And then passes into political theorists like Ernesto Laclau, who, who begin to think in structuralist sort of ways of how to create political articulations, hegemonic political articulations, that function in the same kind of way as the logic of the signifier functions in, in, uh, in structuralism. Uh, so I re remembered uh, about affect that, uh, uh, but I, I included Fanon in the, uh, in the <coughs> first part, right? I said somehow or another, in order to understand that moment, uh, you had to bring together uh, linguistic structuralism of a Saussurean sort and Fanon's uh, essay on violence. It, 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 Fanon's essay on violence is clearly about affect, right? I mean, there's no sense that it even has strategic objectives, right? It's violence. We're pissed off, we've been pushed down. Uh, uh, but even <coughs> we saw briefly there's a slight effective character in, Derrida captures this sometimes, in the structuralist theory of the sign, in the sense that the, the sign imposes itself on the real, right, in some sense or another. Cuts, that was the word that Sassur used. Cuts. Fit, I'm not sure about my French here, but fait un makes a cut you know, in, uh, in the real. So the affective is present uh, from the start, uh, uh, there was a great essay, uh, I'll mention it uh, in case anybody wants to follow up on it, by an uh, uh, anthropologist called Renato Rosaldo, worked at Stanford, worked on headhunting uh, tribes in uh, northern Philippines. Uh, grief and a Headhunter's Rage. That's the name of the essay. Grief and a Headhunter's Rage. Look it up. It's great. Great essay. Uh, 84. Uh, and Rosaldo had been struggling for years with his wife, uh, Michelle, uh, to understand the logic that would lead people to go out uh, uh, and take other people's heads, right? Uh, in in modern in a society not too far away from Manila, and um, he did structuralist things. Uh, the headhunt mediates between high and low, old and young, and, uh, friend and enemy, and, and you know binaries and stuff like that. Uh, uh, deep analysis, uh, but he says he did, he did, didn't really get it. Why somebody would. <laughs> go out and take somebody else's head. I mean, he could understand the structuralist framework in which we submitted, but he didn't quite get it. And then one day he's walking along a trail, or his wife is rather walking along a trail, uh, and, and falls uh, down to a river uh, below, very steep, and dies. She's killed. And he's 
to, it, during in the course of their investigations. It's tied into the event. So he's completely overwhelmed by grief. Uh, uh, can't do anything really for a year or so. And, uh, but then starts trying to put things back together. And when he puts back things together, he discovers that now he knows what the head hunting is all about. Uh, he has an effective uh, correspondence to the to the head hunting. It's not just this abstract theoretical or ideological uh, uh, thing. That, that was a very important essay in the construction of uh, postmodernist anthropology. Uh, uh, and I mention here because I suspect, like a lot of other things, it's disappearing. Uh, or in the process of disappearing, as something that is useful to go to go back to. Okay, so then that reminded me of a. Um, uh, I, I'm sorry to bore you with this, but uh, or if it is boring, uh, a famous uh, debate in uh, medieval Hispanism. I started my career as a Hispanist, so you, you got to get a little bit of Hispanism in here. Uh, this is a debate about the medieval Spanish or Castilian epics. And there had been a traditional position in medieval philology uh, uh, in the 19th century and early 20th century that uh, uh, medieval epics were made up of, uh, made out of, kind of cobbled together, shorter. Uh, songs uh, or narrative ballads that in Spanish are called romances. Uh, short, uh, short, 40, 50, 60, 70 line uh, short ballads. Uh, kind of like narco, I don't know if you're familiar with <coughs> narco corridos today, the kind of songs they make in northern Mexico about the narco, uh, which are like quick narratives, right? Of, uh, 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 some vengeance or killing or, uh, uh, so the idea was uh, Spanish epics can be quite long like the poem of the Cid maybe several thousand lines right in different parts and telling the story of the Cid as he goes through different battles and different things happen uh, and, and so the idea makes sense, right? These short poems are combined together by the troubadours, and they make the larger epic structures. The new theory—I haven't kept up, so I don't know if it's still the case—but the theory I was brought up with, at least when I was a Hispanist, that I was taught was just the opposite. There were the long epics, uh, and they were stories that people sat down and listened to that were more or less coincident with their immediate historical situation or their immediate historical past. That is, the Cid may have been a figure who was just maybe one generation beyond uh, or almost contemporary with them. So his exploits and uh, the narrative of his exploits wasn't uh, a complicated uh, thing. Uh, but as 
a century or two pass and there's more and more distance between uh, uh, people's uh, understanding uh, or involvement or memory of uh, uh, these characters and their adventures, uh, the epics uh, fall into ruin, uh, literally, uh, are ruinated. And the only pieces that are left over uh, are the pieces that have a particular dramatic uh, or lyrical or enigmatic intensity. And these are the romances. Uh, these are the romances. So the romance, where the epic is structured basically by a notion of history mm. and, and transformation, right? One stage to another, a narrative. The romance is structured basically by affect. So it's precisely in the moment of the waning of what we might call some sort of historical possibility or narrative of historical transformation. We would call that waning today postmodernism, right? Postmodernism signals that you're all aware in Leotard's famous phrase, the, the end of the great narratives, right? That there's no longer a narrative of transformation that we can somehow or another locate our, uh, uh, our discourse in relationship to. In that kind of situation, uh, affect, it seems to me, it, uh, that, that is precisely in the situation of the destruction of socialism and communism. Uh, not only of socialism and communism as actual systems, but also as the idea that somehow or another socialism and communism represent a kind of horizon, you know, we haven't got there yet, but it's there. It's in one way or another we're heading there. In that kind of situation, it seems to me a politics of affect, uh, dehistoricized politics of affect, uh, emerges. Now, let me give you one example of a politics of affect, which I think illustrates, depending on how you read this, uh, either the problem or a solution. And this is from uh, Hart and Agri from uh, Commonwealth, the last, the third, the last of the books, which turned out to be, in a funny kind of way, a surprisingly Americanist kind of book. There's a lot of cheering for Thomas Jefferson and stuff like that in, in, in Commonwealth. Uh, Commonwealth is <coughs> 2010, that's 10 years after uh, uh, Empire. So they're kind of revving up a, a sort of Spinozian argument. Uh, uh, and this is the concluding uh, sentence, uh, sentences of the book. Uh, and this is affective politics, I think we have. Yeah, remember it now. Happiness has a dark side. Spinoza describes the joy of destroying what does harm to a friend. Well, that's true enough. We all know that. Uh, the extirpation in ourselves of the attachments to identity and in general the conditions of our enslavement will be extraordinarily painful, but we still we laugh. In the long battle against the institutions that corrupt the common, the common is a key metaphor here, uh, such as the family, the corporation, 
or the nation, we spill no end of tears. Pain, painful stroke, but still we laugh. And in the struggles against capitalist exploitation, the rule of property, and the destroying of the common through public and private control, we will suffer terribly, but still we laugh with joy. They, the bad guys, uh, will be buried by laughter. That seems to me. They're trying, I think, failing, not desperately failing, but at a sort of Nietzschean kind of poetic voice here, kind of like the voice of thus spoke Zarathustra. Still, we laugh, right? Okay. Uh, and that laughter is for them the possibility of the imminence of communism. Okay, so I've already sort of suggested my. <coughs> sense of this, but I think you could take that as either uh, uh, invigorating, still we laugh, uh, or uh, embarrassing, uh, an embarrassing end to what began, as John said, uh, as, a, as a project that had seemed to be coming to terms with a lot of of what was going on in the in the modern world, so I, I tend to think of this as embarrassing. Uh, this is uh, the, the the level at which a Nietzschean politics of affect, which precisely thinks it's better than, and they do think they're better than identity politics. Identity politics is a politics of resentment, right? And, uh, uh, arrives at. Um, okay, I'll just leave that there. Let me just say, uh, finally, and then uh, open it up for a second. Uh, the rise of right-wing uh, uh, populism. Mm -hmm. uh, so, as, as I, I know that this is more of a thing in Eastern Europe and Britain uh, uh, to see UKIP isn't exactly this, and but there, there are elements of UKIP, the community, you know, that kind of stuff, the race. Uh, uh, the, in general, the tendency of what I've been calling way too broadly, uh, I understand that, uh, Deleuzean, the Deleuzean or effective term is uh, 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 to reject the nation as a space of significant uh, political articulation. The nation itself has already been obliterated by capitalism, so it would be kind of reactionary, so hard in Avery argued, to go back to the idea of the nation as a space of significant uh, uh, political articulation, especially hegemonic articulation. The consequence of this is, is the development of a, of a line of thought uh, that a colleague of John and mine's in the in the subaltern studies group, John Beasley Murray, sometimes calls post-hegemony, and he has a book, Post-Hegemony in Latin American Politics or something like that, that has a certain weight. Uh, uh, uh. So the rejection of the nation is fundamental in Delusian politics, right? 
the nation is still important in Leninist politics because the nation is put upon by uh, uh, imperialist powers in their struggle to gain raw materials and resources. So you can imagine the nation is a significant state of articulation. Cuba against imperialism, Angola against imperialism. But today, nothing like that. All those movements turned out badly anyway, so, but in any case, they're not relevant anymore because, because of globalization. Uh, so that's the new subject of history, which is a post-national subject, is the multitude. Uh, similarly, as I uh, just mentioned, Deleuzian uh, uh, politics are extremely contemptuous of identity politics. I mean, there's, there's probably nothing worse than identity. Why? Because identity fixes uh, 